Thank you, my brother. Second Kings, Second Kings, chapter number four, please, in your Bible. Second Kings, chapter number four. Find your place as quickly as you can, and we'll be off and running into the message. Second Kings, chapter number four, please. Thank you. What a good crowd this morning. I'm thankful that you are here. We're heaven bound with a hammer down. I mean, we're in deep cotton and high clover and having a good time. And it's wonderful to be under the spout where the glory comes out. And um, there's something in this message for everybody this morning. Somebody was riding down through the state of Kentucky years ago, way out in the country, and they came to a horse riding stable. And there was a large sign they had put out advertising their horse riding stable. They said, you may rent a horse to ride here. And they say, you can rent a horse. It's what it said on the sign. You can rent a horse by the hour. You can rent a horse by the three hours. Or you can rent a horse for all day. And they said, we have a horse. It's what it said on the sign. We have a horse for everybody. We have tall horses for tall people and short horses for short people. We have young horses for young people and older horses for older people. We have fast horses for high-moving people and slow horses for those that just want to take their time. And for those that have never ridden horses before, we have horses that have never been ridden before. I mean, we just got a horse for everybody. And there's something in this message for everybody uh, this morning. Did I tell you to turn to 2 Kings chapter number 4? Is that where I said? Is it? Okay, well, good. Sometimes we preachers, I've been preaching 58 years, and sometimes we preachers will say things uh, and, and we'll tell people to turn to one place in the Bible and we'll read another, you know. There was an old-fashioned wind-sucking camp meeting preacher from up in Virginia, and he always, when he preached, uh, he would always gap a little bit, uh, and everything had a uh on the end of it. If you ever heard Tony Hudson, he, he does a little of that too, you know. And so um, he was reading his text, um, and he was reading in the book of Genesis where his text was, and he said, and he was reading his text, he hadn't even had his opening prayer. He was reading, he said, and the Lord made her to me, and he turned the page. Well, he thought he turned the page. They were stuck together. He turned three instead of one. Here's what he actually read. And the Lord made her to me 175 cubits long, 100 cubits wide, 50 cubits tall, and he put a window in the top thereof. He stared at it for a moment. He said, she's a big one, she boys, I'm telling you. He looked back down. He said, I wouldn't believe that myself. It wasn't in the Bible. Uh, I'm, but we do get a little confused sometimes, but I'm not this morning. I'm open to 2 Kings chapter number four. And uh, I hate to disturb you since you look so comfortable, but I'm going to have you stand up, stand up. For Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. <coughs> Second Kings chapter number four, and I'll begin reading now, and verse number eight. <coughs> and you follow with me as we read. And it fell on the day that Elisha passed to Shunem, where was a great woman, and she constrained him to eat bread. And so it was that it's oft as he passed by, uh, he turned in hither to eat bread. Now, this is the prophet Elisha. He's got a servant with him all time, and this servant is named Gehazi. And as Elijah and Gehazi came through, this woman constrained him or said, asked him, would you have a meal with us? So as often as he'd come through, he'd have a meal. Then she had a better idea. She asked her husband, why don't we fix a little prophet's chamber? Why don't we fix a room for him so when he comes through, he'll have his own little place to stay? We'll put in there a bed, a candlestick, a table, a stool. And all the time he's passing through, he knows he'll have a place to stay. Her husband agreed. And so they fixed that. So Elisha now has been through several times and stayed in the home of this man and his kind, hospitable wife. So one day he said to his servant while he was staying there, Gehazi, uh, this woman has been careful for us with all of this care. What have we ever done for her? What pay did we ever give her? He said, nothing. He said, well, go find out what she wants. Well, he asked her, would you be spoken of to the king? We can get you a promotion. You and your husband, boy, you can move out of the little house into the big house. No, 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 no. I dwell with my own people. I, you, I love my lot in life. I love what I've got. I don't want to change anything. Well, he went back and told Elisha, she don't really want anything. He says, well, is there nothing? That... He said, oh, yeah. She's never had a child, never had a baby. Yes, she wasn't able. And so he said, go call her. 
She came and stood before Elisha. He said, according to the time of life, you're going to have a child. Oh, do not lie to thy handmaiden. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, I, oh, when I was a younger woman, I dreamed of the day I could hold my own little baby. But oh, no, that, that's all oh, that's in the past. I'm way beyond that in age. And I closed. I, I just forgot that years ago. It's OK. Now, don't worry about it. I, I'm, I'm past the baby stage. No, according to the time of life, you're going to have a baby. And sure enough, miracle of the ages, just like Hannah of old, just like John the Baptist and his wife, miracle of the ages, a little boy was born into that home. Can you imagine the celebration? Can you imagine the jubilation? Can you imagine the overwhelming joy? I had a baby in here with it. And little fella grew up, never gave a second's trouble. And when he was almost grown, he was out in the field with his daddy working. And all of a sudden he said, my, my hand, my hand. Probably an aneurysm, probably a stroke. And his daddy said, get him to his mother, rush him to his mother as quick as you can. And when they brought him in, I could imagine he was already listless. And she sat back and they laid him on her lap and he's laying here like this. And she held him till noon. And at noon, he died. Now, I just paraphrased from the verse I stopped reading all the way down to verse number 21. When he died, here's what happened. Verse 21. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door upon him and went out. Now, we'll learn later she ran to the man of God to get him to pray. Baby, the child had died. The young man had died. Verse 26. Run now, I pray thee, to meet her, Elisha said his servant, Gehazi, and say to her, is it well with thee? Is it well with thy husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, it is well. He's like a river, attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, God hath taught me to say, it is well, it is well with how in this world could that woman say that? How could she say it's well with my husband? It's well with me and it's well with the child. The child was dead. How could she say that? And why would she say that? The answer is found in verse number 21. She took that dead boy. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God. Now, wait a minute. The man of God was a parallel to the Lord Jesus Christ, a type. A type in the Bible does not mean a kind of, but it means a parallel to, a picture of. So Elisha was not a kind of Jesus, but he was a parallel or a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great prophet that God sent. Now, here is Elisha. And so the woman of God saddled an ass and rode to the man of God. When he sees her coming, he says, something's wrong. It's neither new moon nor Sabbath. Something's wrong. She wouldn't be coming. And so she fell down at his feet and said, all is well. The reason she could say that, first reason she could say that is because she took that dead boy and laid it on the bed of the man of God. And in so doing, here's what she's saying. I may never see him again. He may never live again. But the man of God prayed the first time, and when he did, God worked a miracle and gave a baby to a woman that couldn't have a baby. But I had one anyway. And the man of God could pray again and raise him from the dead. Now, he may not do it. But one thing for dead sure, when she laid that dead boy on the man of God's bed, she was saying, he won't have any peace till he does something about that boy. Until, and that's a picture of a Christian saying, until God answers one way or the other. I mean, I believe we ought to th- take things to God and lay them before God and say, Dear Lord, I'm not leaving and I'm not giving up till you give me some kind of an answer. Say yes or no or something. But Lord, I commit it to you and I will, I'll pray until the burden is gone. And I think we need to do some of that type of praying. I really think so. She laid him on the bed of the man of God. But wait a minute. That's not why. That's not why she could say all his way. I'll show you the rest of it right here in that same verse. Here's what it says. Verse 21. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and watch it, watch it, watch it. She shut the door upon him and went out. She shut. It didn't say she just shut the door. She didn't just shut the door to the house. She shut the door to that little room where she had laid that boy on that, that dead boy on that bed. And the Bible says she shut the door upon him. There symbolically is a picture of closing this thing off with God. That doesn't mean she didn't cry later. That doesn't mean she fell at the feet of the man of God and begged, oh, pray, man of God. That doesn't mean that she wasn't normal. That doesn't mean that her heart wasn't broken. That doesn't mean that she still didn't have questions. But what it meant was, 
I'm going to shut the door on this thing. I'm going to close the door on it. I will not let it eat me up. It won't become a cancer to eat me out. I will shut the door on it. And I'm speaking to people all over this room this morning that need to shut the door on some things. And that's where I'm going in the message. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Holy Spirit of God, what a wonderful thing to be under the spout where the glory comes out. I pray, Lord Jesus, you'll bless us now as we preach the Bible. Thank you. We've got a Bible to preach. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'll bless us now and come sweeping over this crowd in an most unusual way. I prayed, I asked you, you gave me assurance you would do it, and now I'm waiting to watch you do it right here in this service. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, please. Buckle your seatbelt and hang on and listen to it very carefully. Number one, we need to shut the door on some horrible things that we have done ourselves. We need to shut the door on some horrible things we have done ourselves. Look, I had a lady in my church. She was there for 20 years. She was a wonderful lady, a sweet, dedicated Christian lady, a servant by spirit. She never sang in a choir. She never sang a special. She never, matter of fact, I don't think she ever taught a class. But she was the kind of woman that was Johnny on the spot when there's anything to be done. She liked to work behind the scenes. If a, if, a, if a young lady in the church was going to get married, and most of the young ladies in our church couldn't afford a turnkey wedding, spend $15,000, $18,000 just to have some company come in and do their wedding. So they had to prepare their own stuff. And this lady helped many a girl to have a nice and beautiful wedding by working hard and getting things and making things. And if you had a potluck, she'd bring food. And if you wanted to put somebody in charge of it, so that it'd be done, it'd been done right, and be done on time. I could put this lady in charge of it, and she would do it without ruffling the feathers of any of the other women, and that is a big order. Say amen, ladies, right there. And, uh, and, and I mean, she was one of the, no flair about her. She was an average looker, no, no flair about her at all, no flauntingness, just a sweet servant of the Lord. All of our ladies loved her. All of our ladies uh, and all of our men respected her, and she was just that kind of a woman. She'd been in my church 20 years serving, I mean, like inner circle. And after 20 years, she came to me one day. She said, Pastor, I need to speak with you. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, it's got to be private, something I've never told anybody. I said, all right. We went aside and sat down. She looked at me. She said, Pastor, years ago, I murdered my little unborn baby. She said, I had an abortion. And she said, Pastor, and by the way, that thing came rolling out of her as though it was something she had done the night before. It happened before she got saved. And she'd asked God to forgive her many times. But it was still tormenting her. It was still plaguing her. And, 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 and she said, preacher, they're not telling the truth to these women and girls about abortion. She said it was a large abortion clinic. And after I had the abortion, they rolled me out into a recovery room. And she said there were several other girls and women in the room that had had an abortion. And they were still under sedation and still in recovery. And she said, preacher, she said, she said, they were all crying. They were all crying. And she said, preacher, I could hear a girl behind me. And she was saying, I killed my baby. I killed my little baby. I killed my baby. She said, preacher, they're not telling the truth. And they're not either, by the way, friend. One woman had an abortion. She said, two o'clock in the morning, I'll wake up. She said, I'm really not awake, but I dream I'm awake. And she said, I'll wake up. And she said, I, I, I. she had had abortion years before. And she said, I'll hear my baby crying. And she said, I, I, I get out of bed in her dream. She'll get out of bed. And she says, I'm looking, I'm looking under the bed and I'm looking around and I'm opening closet doors to see if I can. And my baby's crying louder and louder and I can't get to my baby. And she said, you don't know what torment. And she said, finally, I get out on the front porch and there on the front porch alongside the house as a hedge out there and said, I can see my baby and my baby's in the hedge and my baby's reaching out to me and I'm trying to reach my baby. I can't reach my baby. They're not telling the truth about depression. They're not telling the truth about suicide. They're not telling the truth about the problems that come in the marriages later when you have an abortion. Hey, the devil is a sly old fox. If I could catch him, I'd put him in a box and I'd lock the door and throw away the key for all those tricks that he's played on me, you, and everybody else. Hey, I said to her, I can't believe. I can't believe all these years you've been dragging that along with you. That was put under the blood. 23 years ago. I can't believe. I couldn't believe it. I absolutely couldn't believe. All these years, 
Every day, she was dragging it along, dragging it. Nobody could see it. Nobody knew it. Nobody ever knew it had happened. And she tried to serve the Lord. She tried to be happy, but it was still like leached on to her. It was, she could see it at night. She could, when she woke up of a morning, there it was again. And, and she was just plagued inside and she drug it along and drug it along and drug it along. I let her know it's time to shut the door. The door, shut the door, shut. Let me tell you something. You cannot unscramble an egg. You cannot relive history. You cannot take something out of your life that once got there. You cannot change reality. You, you can't do that. Uh, let me tell you, who among us would not like to take a big old eraser? Who among us cannot remember a night, a moment, a deed, a word, an action, or an event in your life that you wouldn't like to take a big old eraser and just reach up and erase that one hour from your life or that one day from your life? Who am I? Hey, hey, raise your hand if you can't think of any, anything like that you'd like to erase. Better, better than that, come up here and, and, and sign my Bible when I get numb. I've never met anybody like you. Oh, listen, I'm telling you. And so I had the privilege to tell that woman, I can't believe you're still dragging that around. Look, I love this verse. The Bible says in Isaiah 43, verse 25, here's what God said. I Don't, don't look it up. I'll be gone before you get there. Just look this way. I, even I, I, even I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my own sake. That's what God said. Now, wait a minute. Two parts. Number one, he didn't just forgive you. He took it away. He blotted it out. He removed the evidence. It's one thing to forgive somebody. It's another thing to make it disappear. I can forgive you and I can forgive me, but I can't make it disappear. But God can. I can forgive me and I can forgive you, but I can't make it disappear. But God can. He said, your sins and iniquities, I will remember no more. No, but wait a minute. Here's the wonderful part. He said, I blotted it out for my sake. I said, well, Lord, now wait a minute. Wait a minute. I understand you blotting it out for my sake. But you said you blotted it out for your sake? And the Lord said, yeah, I blotted it out for my sake. I said, well, Lord, why did you need to blot it out for your sake? And here's what the Lord showed me. He said, because when I look down at you, I want to love you as though that never happened. When I look down at you, I want to fill you with joy like you never did anything like that in your life. When I look down at you, I want to fill you with my spirit and use you to influence others and to be a wonderful channel of blessing as though no event like that ever took place in your life. So as far as I'm concerned, it never did take place. I blotted it out. I've taken it away. And you don't have to worry about it anymore. Gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. Buried in the deepest sea. Yes, that's good enough for me. I shall live eternally. Thank God. But I said, I want to ask you a question. If God Almighty in heaven blotted out your sins because he did not want to look at them anymore, may I ask you, what are you doing looking at them? What are you doing looking at them? If the holy God in heaven blotted your sins out so you didn't have to look at them, what do you keep looking at them for? Amen and amen. That's pretty good preaching, Brother Brown, if they are doing it. Amen. Yeah. Going to have some terrible things that you've done. Who would not like to reach up in a race? Um, a man came up to me after I preached this sermon. Wasn't that long ago? He said, I'm a public school bus driver. Man was 50 ish. He said, I'm a public school bus driver. He said, Pastor Brown, I ran over a little girl and killed her. He was just possessing him. I said, Sir, you can't unscramble an egg. You can't bring that little girl back to life. You can't. Go and take away the hurt that those parents felt. It's over. And it's, God does not want you to drag that with you the rest of your life. God wants you to shut the door, shut the door. Shut. A woman came up to me. She said, I married the wrong man. I said, you may have married the wrong man, but you're now married to the right man. Yeah. I have a preacher friend that was preaching in a large youth conference. There was a girl there that went to a Christian college that you'd know if I called the name of it. Her mother had gotten cancer, and it was terminal, but she had a time to live. So she, this girl said, the next time I get to go home, I'm going to witness to my mother. 
And she went home. But, you know, the hardest people in the world to witness to is your own family. You know that. And uh, so she uh, she didn't talk to her mother. But she said, I've got plenty of time. And I'm back at Easter. And so I'll be home at Easter. I'll talk to her. Then when she came home at Easter, she didn't talk to her. But she said, it's not long until the end of the semester. And I'll have this summer there at home. And I'll talk to her then. But she got a surprise before the semester was over. She got a call during the class. As you asked to leave the class. Somebody's on the line. She takes the phone and said, your mother just passed away. And that had been some time before this. My preacher friend's up in this large youth conference preaching on winning people to Christ and about their blood being on your hands when you ought to tell people about the Lord and you don't win them to God and how you're blood guilty. And in the middle of his preaching with hundreds of young people there, this girl jumped up and screamed, I let my mother go to hell! I let my mother go to hell! I let... It's an awful thing when you let your mother go to hell. But it's a worse thing to let everybody else's mother go to hell. She couldn't do anything about what she should have done and didn't do with her mother. But every woman is somebody's mother. Every woman needs the Lord. And she could use that as a springboard to win many other mothers to the Lord. We're going to have to shut the door, shut the door. Hey, shut the door. I'm sorry, but you don't relive history. All you can do is learn from it so you don't repeat history. But you cannot relive history. What are you thinking about this morning? What terrible thing did you do? What would you like to erase from your life? What would you like to just cliff off and throw that part away from life? I'm sorry. Forget it. You can't do it. All in this world you can do is shut the door. Shut the door. Shut the door. Shut the door. Some horrible things that you have done. Number two, shut. are you ready for this one? Shut the door on some horrible things, are you ready, that people have done to you. People have done to you. I was preaching in Ohio, and, I, and, and, and I, boy, it was a great service. 500 people there that morning. The altars were full. The former governor was there. I mean, it was just a high service, and wonderful things happening. And joy of the Lord, kind of like this church. And, uh, and so gave the invitation and everything. Wonderful things happened. They dismissed service. Most of the people were gone, pastors standing back, shaking a few hands. I'm sitting here about where this fellow's sitting, and I'm just waiting patiently because the pastor said he's going to take me to lunch, and I'm hungry. And so I'm sitting there, and uh, all of a sudden, a man walked up. He looked like he's in his 70s, and he had a lady with him that he introduced him to me as his sister. I found out the lady was 61 years old, and he said, and she lived with him, I think. I think, I, I didn't remember asking that part, but I think it did because they were going home together, so I think she lived with him. Well, anyway, he told me this. He said, Pastor Brown, this is my sister, and called her name. He said, we don't live far from here, and said, we left after the service, and we were almost home, and he said, um, he said, just before we got to the house, she turned to me and said, I can't go home. I cannot go home. He said, well, what do you mean you can't go? She said, I got to talk to that preacher. I got to tell him something I've never told anybody. He said, well, if you want to talk to the preacher, we'll go back and talk to the preacher. So he said, we just turned around and came back and walked in. Here we are. I said, wonderful. Great. Sit down right here, lady. She sat down. And he sat down beside her. And uh, so I said, what's your story? She said, well, when I was a child, I was molested by a stepfather. I said, how old were you? She said, age 10 to 20. I said, 20, couldn't you do anything about that? She said, you don't know what it's like to live in fear. She said, I was 38 years old before I got married because of it. And then I married a fellow that ended up to be a drunk. But oh, oh, she said, the happy moment in my life when they came and told me I was going to have a little baby. She said, for the first time in my life, I would have somebody to love that wouldn't hurt me. And I would have somebody that would love me without hurting me. She said, Pastor, you cannot know how happy I was. For the first time in my life, I had a ray of hope. Someone, something to cling on to and love safely. And then he, she said one night, he got drunk, kicked me and killed the baby. And she said, all my life, all my life, I felt like a worthless piece of filth. I had the joy of telling that woman there was a bomb in Gilead. I had the joy of telling that woman something she had never thought about. I said, lady, if you had any idea how many women and girls there are in this world who have had to go through what you've gone through, that wouldn't listen to me five minutes because they know I don't understand. 
They know I don't know what it's like, and nobody knows what that terror is like unless they've been through it, and more women than you think have been through it. But I'm telling you something. I I, I said, they wouldn't listen to me. They know I don't know. They know I don't feel what they feel. But they would listen to you because you've been through it. And I tried to tell her what a ministry she could have. But in essence, here's what I was saying. It's time to shut the door on that. It's time to shut the door on that. Oh, listen, horrible things that people have done to you. I want an older man to the Lord. And he came to our church. He's still coming. By the way, he's still there. But he was in his 70s. And, uh, and he never married, no bachelor, never married, lived alone. He was faithful to church, and he did get saved. But he had a face as long as a mule-eating sawbriars. You've never seen such a sad-looking mortal in your life. Well, I tried to cheer him up from time to time. I came by and said, Simon, how you doing? Oh, very good. Yeah. And one day I said, Simon, you never got married, did you? Nope. I said, so you never found Miss Wonderful, did you? He said, yep. I said, you did? He said, yeah. I said, so you found Miss Wonderful? He said, I sure did. I said, tell me about her. He said, she was the most beautiful thing. I was young. She was the most beautiful thing I ever saw in my life. And I loved that girl. And that girl loved me. And he said, we wanted to get married. But he said, you see, she and her people, they had money, lots of money, And we were from the other side of the tracks. We were poor, real poor. And when her mother heard and her daddy heard that we had a shine for each other, her mother said, no way, no way, no way, no way will you ever marry that boy. We'll see to that. And he said, they broke us up. And he said this. He's telling me this story. He said, when they broke us up, I took my rifle and I went out on a high hill. And I stood on that hill and I set the butt of that rifle down on the ground. And I put the point right here to this temple. And I leaned over and put my thumb on the trigger. And he said, and he paused. And then he looked up at me and said, I've wished a thousand times I'd have pulled that trigger. And I thought, what a shame. This old man's lived all his life lonely because he didn't stop to think, number one, there's more than one girl in this world. And number two, when God takes something from you, it's for a purpose. He's got something better somewhere. I mean, I'm speaking to some young lady in this room, and Mr. Wonderful's going to come into your life, and for whatever reason, he's going to go out of your life like he came in your life, and you're going to just want to go away and sit and say, nobody loves me, everybody hates me, I think I'll go eat worms. You know, hey, young lady, young man, you're the same way. Young man, you're the same way. You found Miss Wonderful. Well, the circumstances of life took her away. Hey, God has got more fish in the sea than one. Say amen right there. More fish in the sea than one. Listen to this. Hey, young lady, did you ever, young man, did it ever occur to you that God is trying to, did it ever occur to you that God may be trying to save you from something? Did it ever occur to you that God may be trying to protect you from something when you go through a crisis like that in your life? You might be like, my pastor used to tell about a, a, a pastor who visited the mental institute, John M. said Hospital in Butner, North Carolina. It was the mental institute. I've been there, not for treatment either. I've been there, I've been there for, to visit people. And it's the mental institute. And this pastor was walking along with, with the guard, and he was walking down past some cells where people pretty bad shape were. But there was a man standing there, and he was holding on to the bars, and he was staring out. And, he, and as they passed by, here's what he was saying, with, like it was in a coma. Lulu. Lulu, Lulu. And this pastor asked the guard, what's his problem? Well, when he was young, he fell in love with a girl named Lulu. He thought she was the grandest thing since orange juice, you know. And he fell in love with this girl named Lulu. Well, somebody with more brains, more money, more talent, more looks, and more personality came by and swept Lulu off her feet and left this guy sitting high and dry. And instead of going on in life, <laughs> he wouldn't forget it. He, he just wouldn't forget it. He wouldn't accept it. And it can't, stayed on his mind until he went stone crazy. He's been standing here for years saying, Lulu, Lulu. Well, he said they walked about three sails further. There was a guy, sure enough, in a bad shape. I mean, he couldn't even stand up. His eyes were crossed. 
Saliva running out of his mouth. His hair is down. And, and as he, lo- he looked up at him when they walked by, and here's what he said, Lulu, Lulu, Lulu. And this pastor said to the guard, I guess he lost Lulu too, huh? And the guard said, oh, no, he didn't lose Lulu. He's the one that got Lulu. <laughs> And he was in a worse shape than the one that lost Lulu. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Some horrible things people have done to you. What did they take from you? What did they do to hurt you? Amen. Yeah. I could tell you story after story after story after story of people that have been hurt and crushed by other people. And if we, and we wouldn't do it for all the money you could put on this platform, but if we could show on these screens up here the people sitting in my presence right now who have been hurt and crushed by words and deeds and action by other people to the point you didn't know how you could breathe. You didn't know how you could live. And I'm telling you something, friend. Uh, it's an amazing thing, the horrible things people do to people. But it's time to shut the door, shut the door, shut the door. I feel a draft. Somebody has left a door open somewhere. I don't know where it is, but we need to shut the door, shut the door, shut the door, shut the door on some horrible things you've done and some horrible things people have done to you. But if the first two didn't get you, I'm going to nail you with the third point. Some horrible things that people have done to people that you loved. You might want to jot these three references down. It'll change your life. Three verses that'll change your life. The first one's sound in 2 Samuel 17, 23. Listen to it carefully. 2 Samuel 17, 23. Now listen to it. I'd rather you hear it than be looking it up, but so listen carefully. And when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his ass and rode and got him to his house and to his city, and he put his household in order and hanged himself and died and was buried in the sepulcher of his father. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he committed suicide. Did you know I've been preaching for 58 years? And did you know I read that verse dozens of times, and every time I'd read it, I'd say, I don't get that one. Just because his counsel was not followed, he committed suicide. I mean, it's a bad thing when somebody else gets your job, but kill yourself over it? Hello. And one day I found the answer to, as to why he committed suicide. You must understand that Ahithophel was the right-hand man of King David. God had gifted him with such wisdom that when he spoke, his word were, they called it, they said of him that his word was as the oracle of God, meaning the word oracle means the word of God. It was like you were inquiring of God. It was like God was telling you what to do. That's how wise the man was. And in battle plans and battle strategy, David wouldn't have thought about going to battle without consulting Ahithophel. Well, right in the middle of everything, Ahithophel defected and ran away from David and joined David's worst enemy, which happened to be David's son, Absalom, who had run his daddy off the throne and was trying to kill his own father. And Ahithophel joined him to try to kill Absalom's father, who was the former boss of Ahithophel, who happened to be King David, the sweet singer of Israel. So he came up with a plan. And he said, Absalom, here's what you got to do. You can kill your daddy. And here's the way you can do it. And he came up with a plan and told him to circle him. But the plan he came up with would leave Ahithophel in the place to draw the bow. But, uh, but Absalom happened to have another counselor before Ahithophel joined him. This other counselor gave uh, Absalom a different plan. Absalom followed the plan of his first counselor instead of Ahithophel. And Ahithophel committed suicide. It makes sense. Crazy. Until I found the answer. That first verse describes the man. The second verse, and I'll just, I'll just quote a part of the verse to you. The second verse found in the same book, 2 Samuel 23, 34, and here's what it says. Listen carefully. The last part of the verse says it's given a genealogy, and here's what it says. Eliam, the son of Ahathophel the Gileonite. Eliam, the son of who? Ahathophel. Oh, you know, wait a minute. Listen, hey, I'm about to unload a heavy one on you. Don't lose your train of thought. So here is a man named Ahithophel. When he couldn't kill King David, he, he killed himself. But he has a son named Eliam. 
Now, with that in mind, let me read you this. 2 Samuel chapter 18. Uh, no, it's a 2 Samuel 11 and 3. Listen carefully. Here's what it said. It's in the chapter where David commits adultery with Bathsheba. So he sees this woman. He sends somebody to get her, and she's coming. Well, as she's coming, here's what the Bible says. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, somebody said, as they said, David's asking for Bathsheba. Don't he understand who she is? Don't he understand this is the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Hold the phone. This Bathsheba was the daughter of who? Eliam. Who did I tell you a while ago Eliam was? Eliam was the son of Ahathophel. What does that make Bathsheba to Ahathophel? Granddaughter. Get it? Ahathophel saw the one man he almost worshipped. He saw him murder his granddaughter's husband so he could take his granddaughter for himself. And something happened to him. And, and you can understand why, can't you? He murdered this man's grand, granddaughter's husband to take the woman, his granddaughter, to himself. He watched her cry. The Bible says she wept and had days of mourning. Uriah was the best soldier. I, I want to preach a whole sermon someday on Uriah. David couldn't get him. David brought him home to send him to his house to spend a night with his family so that when the baby was born, everybody, including Uriah, would believe it was his son, his child. But David, he wouldn't even go to his own house. He said, look, all of Israel's laying in the open fields in battle. You think I'm going home and enjoy the comforts of home when my brethren are fighting on the front line? I won't do it. You're talking about a soldier. You're talking about a disciplined man. You're talking about a righteous man. It was Uriah. And Ahathophel saw David murder him so he could take this woman that he wanted. And you'll find in Psalms 51 and other places that David got this right with God. Search me, O Lord. Make the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Cleanse me. Then shall sinners be converted. He got it right with God. But you never find in the Bible where he got it right with a half a fail. You never find in the Bible where he went to half a fail and says, I did wrong. I murdered your granddaughter's husband because I had lust and I wanted that woman for me. And it was more than a half a fail could take. And this bitterness kept boiling and boiling and boiling until finally he wanted to kill him. And I'm telling you, when he couldn't pull that bow and kill him, he killed himself because bitterness will kill you if you don't get the door closed. Bitterness will kill. Do you know what bitterness is? Watch it this. Bitterness is a poison that you drink in hopes that it will kill your enemy. Bitterness is a poison. Did you know what? Bitterness never hurts your enemy. It, it only hurts two. It hurts you and it hurts innocent people that never did you any wrong. You poison everybody else around you. You treat good innocent people like dirt because you won't shut the door on it. And you won't forget it. Your enemy gloats in it. Amen. Don't you look at me that way. Look at me, stare at me like a bullfrog in a hailstorm. You know I'm telling the truth. You know I'm telling the truth. Listen, I'm talking about we're going to have to shut the door, shut the door, shut the door on some horrible things that people have done to you. Horrible things. I feel a draft. Somebody left the door open somewhere. I don't know where, but I can feel it. I can feel it. I've been preaching too long. I can feel a draft. Somebody needs to shut the door on some horrible things people have done to you. Uh, now, if the first two didn't get you, I'm going to nail you now on the third point. We need to shut the door, not only on some horrible things we've done, and shut the door on some horrible things people have done to us, but we need to shut the door on some horrible things that people have done to people that we loved. The people that we loved. Let me tell you something. I don't mean to sound spiritual, but if a man were to get up right now in this congregation and casually walk up here, and when he got to me, if he were to draw back and knock me down on this floor, I really believe, I don't mean to sound pious, 
I practice this in my mind over and over again because it'll have to happen someday. You, you hang around, you know, some of the things I preach on, pointing my finger at people, it just could happen any time. But if a man got up and he came up here and knocked me down on this carpet, I really believe that I could wipe the blood off and go on and finish the sermon. But, and I, God, I'd have wonderful grace. I just believe I could handle that. But if that same man got up out of his seat and he come walking down this aisle and reached over and got this woman right here, this happens to be my wife, by the way. And he reached over and got this woman right here and jerks her out now and knocks her down. Right there is where the climate changes. Amen? Amen, fellas. Right there is where everything changes big time. Right there is where somebody's going to have to hold this bald-headed preacher. I'm going to come climbing up somebody's carcass like a monkey climbing a telephone pole. I'll feed him a knuckle sandwich. I'll hit him so hard at Jari's grandma. Amen? You say, well, you little 74-year-old run, I'd whip you. You'd have it to do, bud. Amen? Brother, I'm going to tell you one thing. I'd come alive. We're in the Pepsi generation. I'd come alive. Brother, I can handle what you do to me. But when you start hurting my wife and hurting my children and hurting my little grandchildren, when you start hurting my pastor and you start hurting people that I love, hey, it's Katie bar the door. Right there's where, listen, talk comes cheap and preaching is easy until you go through one of those. And right there's where it gets serious, real serious. And they start hurting your little children. When they start hurting your, your little children, right there is where things get real serious. I feel, I feel a breeze. I, I, I feel a draft. Somebody, somebody's left a door open somewhere. I, I don't know what. Uh, listen to this. Jack Love came to our church every year for one service, and he wasn't a preacher. And he never preached a sermon. Jack Lowe, I saw him in person. I was there year after year. Jack Lowe just came to give his testimony. And we kept having him every year. And people got saved. And people got blessed. And wonderful things happened when Jack Lowe came. One service, one time a year. And I don't have time to tell the whole story. But I'll tell you enough, you won't forget it. Jack Lowe starts out this way. He said, when I was a five-year-old boy, my daddy died. Five years old. His dad was in his 20s. His mother was in his 20s. And he said, you know, when you're a child, and by the way, he said, I didn't have any friends because I just stayed home. I was five-year-old. I didn't go to school. I didn't have a brother. I didn't have a sister. I was the only child. And he said, you know, when you're a child, you don't think about your mother being pretty or ugly. You just don't think. Your five-year-old boy don't think of that. But he said, as I got older and I looked back, pictures of my mom when she was still in her 20s, he said, my mother was a most beautiful woman. I mean, she was strikingly beautiful. She was uh, drop-dead beautiful, you know. And he said, you don't realize this when you're a child, but because she was so pretty, a man started plying for her attention. And when he did, she started promptly resisting him for two reasons. Number one, she was still grieving over her husband. Number two, she knew too much about this guy. She knew if she was interested in, in somebody, it wouldn't be him. She knew too much about him. But he kept pursuing her, and she kept rejecting, and he kept pursuing her, and she kept rejecting, and he kept pursuing her, and she kept rejecting, until finally she had to get pretty abrupt with him. And Jack says, I'll never forget, <clears throat> Mama and I was picking blackberries, wild blackberries. Mama said, son, said, Jack, we're going to make us a blackberry cobbler. He said, Mama just took me under her wing because I was all she had, and Mama was all I had. And he said, we were picking blackberries, watching for those copperheads and rattlesnakes, you know. And he said, Mama said, son, I see right up the bank here about 20 feet, there's some more berries. And we picked these out. Well, we got about that much to go. We're going to go home and fix us a good old blackberry cobbler. And he said, oh, I can just taste it. And he said, Mama said, but if we try to get through the briars and go get her clothes torn. And she said, well, just step off on the wagon road here. And said, she reached and got my hand and lifted me off down on an old wagon road there. And said, when she, when she lifted me off by the hand and my feet touched that road, a man, that man that had been pursuing her, stepped out from behind an evergreen bush eight feet away. That's about as far as I am from here. That's about eight feet from here to that pulpit. And said he stepped out and raised a 12-gauge double-barrel shotgun eight feet from my mother's stomach and pulled both triggers at the same time. He said he cut my mother half in two. She was dead before she hit the ground. He said, I, I couldn't believe it. He said, I shook the, 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 the velocity of the shotgun, 
the blast ringing in my ears, and I saw my mother drop. Her eyes rolled back, were twitching, blood gushing everywhere. She said, I dropped down over my mother, and I slipped my little five-year-old hand under her head. I said, Mama, I'll kill him. I'll kill him, Mama. I promise I'll get him. I'll kill him, Mama. Imagine a little five-year-old boy saying, and there is where the story starts, how that bitterness and hate for that man boiled up inside of him. And as he got older, it got worse. He lived with it. He dreamed it at night. And during the day, he could envision getting behind. He said, when I heard they gave him life in prison instead of the chair, I was tickled. I didn't want them to kill him. I wanted to kill him. I wanted to be the one. I didn't want them to electrocute him. I wanted to have, he said, I loaded and unloaded a 38 a thousand times. And I look at it and dream of the day when I squeeze that trigger and take the man out of this world that took everything in this world I had to live for. But they said, Jack Lowe, you'll never see that man. We know who your mother was, and we know who killed her, and you will never get behind those walls. And oh, I don't have time to tell you the story of how that man ate his intestines out with drugs and alcohol and burnt his brain out until there was nothing left but an emancipated little bony man and laying on an operating table that's getting ready to take more of his stomach out. They're taking two-thirds of his stomach out and take more of his stomach out where he had just destroyed his body with liquor over bitterness and hate. And before they sedated him, he got saved. Don't tell, I wish I had time to tell you the whole story and how it led up to that. But then he said, I started trying to get behind those walls for a reason I'd never had before in my life. And he said, pastors and people and workers worked with him and talked to legislators and talked to prison authorities, trying to convince them Jack Lowe is not going to hurt the man, but he's got to see the man. He's got to see the man that killed his mother. I won't go into the whole detail of how it happened. But I'll never forget if I live to be 100 and die with Alzheimer's. I'll never forget hearing Jack Lowe tell about that big hydraulic door that slid open. And he said, I went forward and stood with the guard by my side. And the door clanged behind me as it slid. And then the next hydraulic door buzzing, sliding open. And we stepped through the second one. And that door closed and clanged. And the guard says, come on, I'll show you the man. And he said, we walked along, and we were on the outside of the cell block. And he said, we came along, and there was a rock wall, not far as from here to the back of the building, but two-thirds to the back of the building, just a rock, pretty rock wall. And there were some beautiful flowers planted along the wall. And there was an older man, an older gentleman, bent down, working with the flowers at the other end. The guard said, stop here. And Jack stopped. He said, you see that man? He said, yeah. He said, that's the man that killed your mother. Jack said, can I talk to him? The guard said, as long as I'm with you. He said, let's go. And he walked down. Jack said, got some pretty flowers here, sir. He said, well, thank you. Thank you. I, I, he said, I do this every spring, and, and they let me do it. I just love to work with the flowers. It gives me something to do. And he said, passes the time. I ain't going nowhere, no way. <laughs> and he said, it passes the time. And uh, he said, got a minute we can talk? He said, yeah, yeah, we can talk. He said, can we sit down right here? It's one of them iron benches. He said, sure. He said, we backed up and sat down on the bench. He said, I didn't get my body all the way on that bench until I looked him square in the eye and said, sir, my name is Jack Lowe. Jack said you could see it in his eye when it dawned on him who he was talking to. And here's what he did. He looked at Jack Lowe like this. And when it hit him who he was talking to, here's what he did. Oh, Jack says, sir, you see this hand right here. He said, you're looking at the hand that loaded and unloaded a 38 a thousand times dreaming of the day when I could take that finger right there and squeeze it and blow your head off of what you did to me. He said, mister, my mother was all I had. My daddy was dead. I didn't have a friend. I didn't have a sister. I didn't have a brother. I didn't have anybody. And you took away everything in this world I had. And he said, I've hated you and I've destroyed my health and life trying to get to you to kill you. But he said, what do you see in that hand today? The old man looked at it and he said, well, it looks like a Bible. He said, it is a Bible. He told that old man how he got saved and how God forgave him and how God's precious blood washed all that old pussy bitterness out of him and made him a new man and put love where hate had been all those years. And he said, sir, I didn't come to kill you today. I came to bring you the news somebody brought to me and, I came, and won the old man to God standing right there. Won him to God. 
And you won't believe this, he later got paroled. They paroled the old man. Jack Lowe took him in his home and he lived in Jack Lowe's home until they could find a place for him to stay. One of the greatest, one of the greatest stories of love and forgiveness you ever heard in all of your life because one man shut the door, shut the door. Shut. I don't know what somebody did to you one day and I don't know what somebody did to somebody that you loved. And if you could, I wouldn't want you to stand up and tell it because it wouldn't be public information. But I'll tell you this right now, life gets tough. And when they start hurting me, I maybe can handle it. But you start hurting people that I love, that's when it gets ugly. That's when it gets rough. But by the grace of God, by the grace of God, there is a bomb in Gilead. By the grace of God, by the grace of God, you start hurting people that you love. General Lee was talking to a woman one time. And just shot up her tree out in the front yard that the Yankees had. And she was talking to General Lee. And she said, General Lee, what do you do with that? What do you do with a tree like that? And these blasted Yankees come through. They, they take our cattle. They take our chickens. And it was during the war, you know, Civil War. And, and they kill our sons and they kill our brothers in war and take everything. And then shoot. My grandfather planted that tree and my daddy swung on that tree. And there's a little girl I swung on it. What do you do with it? General Lee just looking at that tree. Started off down the road. Oh, General Lee, General Lee, you never told me what you'd do with the tree. He said, whoa, traveler. That was the name of General Lee's horse, by the way. Whoa, traveler. He said, lady, if I were you, I'd just cut it down and forget it. And I'm speaking to people all over this room. It just needs to cut some junk down and forget it. I'm not going to fight a war that ended over 150 years ago. Did you hear that? I'm not fighting a war that ended over 150 years ago. It's time to cut some stuff down and forget. Some of you are fighting wars that ended years ago. It's time to shut the door, 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 shut the door. I feel a draft. I feel a draft. Somebody, more than one somebody in this room has left the door open. And if you don't shut, did I tell you that poison, bitterness is a poison you drink? in hopes that it will kill your enemy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Psalms 84, 6. Blessed is the man that walketh through the valley of Baca, make it a well. When I read that in the book of Psalms, I thought, well, I never heard of a valley of Baca before. And I looked it up. Here's what it said in the center marginal reference. It said, the valley of Baca, not a literal valley, but any place of weeping and tears. Blessed is the man that walks through the valley of tears, but makes it a well, not a poison well, where, you, where everybody can come drink from it and get bitter and ugly and die of poison, but a wellspring, a beautiful fountain of life-giving, clear, cool water. Hey! Yeah. God did not intend for you to poison your family because you got mad. This, you know what bitterness does? Bitterness hurts everybody that did you no wrong. Bitterness hurts the people that didn't do anything wrong to you. It never hurts the people that did something wrong. They glowed in it. But it hurts your family, hurts your little children, hurts your marriage, hurts your life, hurts your joy, hurts your spirit. Yeah. yeah. It's time to shut the door, shut the door, shut the door. Amen. And by the way, if you don't do it, you will never be used of God. You'll never have that radiance. Uh, <clears throat> Ron Hamilton wrote, I saw Jesus in you. I saw Jesus in you. I could hear his voice in the words you said. I saw Jesus in you. Do people really see Jesus in you? You've seen others you could see Jesus in. They just radiate. Maybe a man or woman or even a teenager. You could see Jesus in the way they loved and spoke and forgave, the way their voice and their reaching out. They just seemed to love the world. Oh, yes. Have you ever longed to be that way? Have you ever longed to be one of them? Forget it. You'll never be unless you shut the door. Shut the door. Shut the door. A little girl, I'm, I'm circling the field coming in for the landing on the sermon. Now, don't miss this. Don't miss it. A little girl years ago was born. Healthiest little thing you ever saw. She had a little eye irritation of some kind. We don't know what it was. But the old family doctor came around and well-meaningly, he treated her eyes and put the wrong thing in her eyes. And that little girl was blind. Died in her 70s, but was blind from, I think she was only a month old when he put stuff in her eyes. And, and 
And all her life was blind, never saw the light of day. But when that little girl was only eight years old, she wrote these words. Oh, what a happy soul I am, although I cannot see. I am resolved this in this world, contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep inside because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. Oh, you might be interested to know. When she got a little bit older, she wrote these words, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. She also wrote, Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. She also wrote, Saved by grace. She also wrote, I shall know him, I shall know him. She also wrote, Safe in the arms of Jesus. She also wrote, Jesus is tenderly calling thee home, calling thee home. She also wrote, Redeemed how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. She also wrote, pass me not, O gentle Savior, hear my humble, and 8,000 other songs and hymns. Her name was Fanny Crosby, and she set churches like yours singing for three and four generations for one reason. She just shut the door as a little girl. She shut the door, shut the door, shut the door. We need to shut the door on some things people have done to us. And I close with this. There's people in this room need to shut the door just so you can get saved. My wife and I were traveling. We travel a lot. We travel by plane. I mean, listen, uh, I, I preached in Sacramento the last few days. I preached for Dr. Treber in the big conference there this week. I'm preaching here. We'll fly home, then take off to South Boston, Virginia. And then from there, where do we go from there, honey? I can't remember. I got to look at the calendar. We're just meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. But we were traveling, driving a car. We don't drive over about five hours car drive, then we have to fly. And, uh, but anyway, um, so, so we were, and we pulled in at a Waffle House, get some breakfast, a Waffle House. And when I went in, there was a fellow sitting over the table there, uh, maybe late 40, maybe 50. And as I always do, I just took a little gospel track out and it to him. I said, sir, let me give you something to read there. I'll tell you how I can go to heaven. He said, well, thank you. He said, I can't get saved. It's right out of the place. I can't get saved. I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, why is that? He said, but, <clears throat> because I hate the man that killed my daughter. I said, really? I told my wife to go ahead and sit down. I said, tell me your story. Well, in a, in a nutshell, his daughter had joined a church that was of the Pentecostal healing variety. And they had a young pastor. And the young pastor, I'm sure, was sincere, but sincerely wrong. He didn't believe in any medicine or any doctors or anything they could do. And this daughter was an epileptic, and she had to have medication to keep her from dying with seizures. He took her medicine away, and she had a seizure and died. And he said, I guess I should have killed him. He said, my wife divorced me because I wouldn't kill him. And I've never seen a man so crushed and burdened. But he said, I can't get saved. You can't get saved with something like that in your heart. I began to explain to him how the man, though he was wrong, was wrong in his doctrine and wrong in his attitude and wrong in his conduct. He didn't, I said, he didn't mean to kill your daughter. He thought he was doing the right thing. He didn't mean to kill your daughter. And I dealt with him, but he wouldn't get saved. I left him a track. I went over and sat down in the booth, and I was eating. And then a little bit, I heard that man saying, oh, God, oh, God. He wouldn't pray aloud, but just I heard him. I said to my wife, stay right here. I went over. And I sat down. He said, I read the little prayer here. I read your track. I asked God to forgive me, and I just asked him to save me. He shut the door. He shut the door. He shut the door. Shut the door in some past opportunities you had to be saved. I closed with this. I went to this very brief. I went to the hospital to visit a man I'd been asked to see. And the man was in his 70s, and I gave him the gospel. He listened to me as, as content as you're listening to me right now. And when I gave him the gospel, he said, you know, he said, when I was a teenager, I was in a church, and a preacher got up and told the exact same thing you've told me about how to go to heaven. And I knew it was my time, and I knew it needed to be saved. And I started to go, but he said, I looked down the row, and some of my buddies were in my row. And I thought, what am I going to say to them? Or what are they going to think? And what am I going to say to them after the service if I go get saved? And he said, I didn't go. And he just stopped and looked at me. I said, well, yes, you should have gone. But thank God, God let you live this long so you could get saved. No, he said, that was my time. I said, I know 
But as long as you have breath and life in your body, you're a candidate to get saved. It's appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. And until you die, you have an opportunity to get saved. It's never too late as long as there's life in the body. It's never too late. He said, but I've thrown my life away. I said, you've thrown your life away, but don't go throw your soul away over it. Don't go to hell over it. Don't burn forever and ever over it. Did you know I could not convince that man that he needed to shut the door on what he did as a teenager in rejecting Christ? Did you know that's been years ago? Did you know as far as I know, that man is screaming in the flames of hell right now because he would not shut the door on past opportunities to be saved. You maybe should have gotten saved a thousand times before this morning, but I'm telling you something, this could be God's last call on you. This just could be God's last call. I'll make you a promise. If I were you, knowing what I know, I'd come to this preacher and say, Preacher, now you can do what you want to. It may take five minutes or five hours, but I'm not walking out those doors until I know for sure if I died, I'd go to heaven. I'm just not going to do that. Now, now you can do whatever you want to with me, preacher. You can, you can make me stay here by myself, but I'm not going out those doors until I know for sure. And by the way, you don't have to wait over five minutes. You get saved like that. It's a gift of God, not a works, lest any man should boast. But you need to shut the door on the past. Shut the door. Shut the door. Shut the door. Bow our heads and close our eyes.